That is one of my favorite prayers that we pray together in song as a church. And I'd like to invite you to continue with that same heart of dependence and gratitude, that same sense of need. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we dive into God's word? Lord, it is such a joy to be reminded once again of your glory, your power, your majesty as the immortal, invisible God, the maker and sustainer of all, and also to be reminded of your incredible grace, that though you rightfully can demand everything from us, you have given yourself to us, you have provided salvation. As we come confessing our sin and acknowledging our need for forgiveness, you offer us a word of pardon in Christ. You give forgiveness and mercy and salvation to us. Lord, I ask that as we contemplate these incredible truths that you would stir up within our hearts that, that longing, that desire to not only sing your praise and, and express our thanks to you, but also as we sang to proclaim that good news again and again. So now, Lord, we ask that to that end, you would attend to the preaching of your word, that you would bless it, that you would infuse it with power, you would cause your word to take root in our hearts today and accomplish your will. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9 this morning. In each of the Gospels, whether it's Luke, Matthew, Mark, uh, also in John's Gospel, we are introduced to this small band of men these 12 that are handpicked by Jesus. And as you know, they spend three years following Jesus and he trains them. He sometimes tests them because he's preparing these men, these 12, to be his apostles, the ones who will speak for him, the ones who will carry the good news following his ascension into heaven to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost ends of the earth. And it's helpful for us that we have these gospel stories because we learn a lot from these men, don't we? Their struggles are often our struggles. They deal with doubt. They deal with fear. They struggle to understand the big picture of exactly what Jesus is doing. We see that at times they're frustrated with his timing. We see that at other points they are bickering with each other because they're jealous and they're squabbling over who's going to get the best seat in the kingdom. We can relate to that, can't we? But we have more in common with these men than just their weaknesses. We also share a common mission with them. We're called to the same ministry. You and I may not be apostles, but we too are called to go fish for men. We're called to make disciples. We also are called to proclaim the good news that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again to rescue and redeem sinners. You see, those whom Jesus calls, he also sends. And as he sends us, his gospel mission becomes our gospel message. In this text today, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, I want to consider four essential truths about this gospel ministry, things that we actually share in common with the 12, because I think that these truths, not, they not only matter for the 12, there's obviously some specific instructions for them in this text, but there's principles here that transcend the first century. These principles matter for us in our gospel ministry 
today. I'm going to read the text, and then we'll look at these four truths together. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Luke writes, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. In this text, there's really three verbs right at the beginning, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, in verses 1 and 2. And if you're the kind of person that likes to mark in your Bible, these would be great things to circle or underline. It says that he called the 12 together. Second, that he gave them power and authority. And then in verse 2, that he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. As we consider our truths this morning, I want to focus on the first one of those verbs, that he called the 12 together. And from this, we draw the principle that Jesus calls us for a purpose. He called them for a purpose, and he calls us for a purpose. And this is intentional language here. The word for calling here is the same term we find in chapter 15. In verse 6 and 9 of chapter 15, Luke uses the same word of calling to describe summoning guests to a banquet. This is intentional. Again, in chapter 23, this word is described to, to show what Pilate is doing when he calls together the chief priests for a formal delegation. They're going to deliberate on what to do with Jesus, who's been arrested. So when it says that Jesus calls them together, this is a formal announcement. It's not just that they were hanging out one day and Jesus said, oh, hey, hey guys, listen up for a minute. I actually have something I want to say. No, this indicates a, a formal meeting. They set aside work. It looks like some of them still at times would go fishing and do things like that. They set aside family life. We know Peter had a wife, and perhaps some of the others did as well. They set aside their daily duties, whatever they may have been working on, making plans for travel or counting the money or, or whatever it may have been. They set aside all of that to attend to a matter of great importance because Jesus had called them together for a purpose. Jesus has something cooking. He calls them together, and Luke's wording here heightens our sense of expectation. He calls them together for this solemn assembly because it is time for them to engage in an important task, one that Jesus has actually had in mind from the beginning. This is connected to the purpose of his calling them. In chapter 5, remember, Jesus told Peter that one day he would no longer be catching fish because Jesus was going to teach him how to be fishing for men. They were called to follow Jesus so that one day, after having been trained, he might send them out. They had been chosen for this task. In chapter 6, we find that Jesus spends an entire night in prayer. He's up on the mountain by himself, and he comes down the next day. 
under the sovereign direction of his father, guided by the Holy Spirit, and he chooses these 12. And he chooses 12 for a reason. There are 12 disciples, which corresponds to the 12 tribes in Israel, because God intends that these men would bring the good news to the people of promise. Israel needed to hear about the fulfillment of God's promises and the coming of the Messiah and establishment of the kingdom, and it would be up to these men to spread that message. This is what they were called for. This is what they had been appointed to. As you know, to this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been the one ministering to the crowds. He's been teaching. He's been healing. And all the people are coming to see him. They're all coming to hear him. But now we're going to see these men step up to the plate and they're going to go tell others. They're going to go preach. They are going to perform miracles and they're not going to wait for people to come and be interested in Jesus. They're going to go start the conversation. They're going to become far more than passive spectators who sit at Jesus' feet and receive from him. Now I want to clarify, does this mean that Jesus needs their help? Sometimes I think well-meaning uh, teachers or, or even pastors will, will indicate that when we go and share the gospel that Jesus needs us to do this. I don't think Jesus actually needed their help at all. <laughs> Remember, this passage comes right on the heels of, of story after story that show us the absolute power and authority of Jesus. He calms the storm. He casts out the demons from that man in, in the, the graveyard. He even raises a little girl from the dead. Do you think he needs help from these disciples? Not in the least. You see, Jesus could have chosen to spread his gospel any way he chose. But listen, this is God's plan. He calls people so that he might send them. God desires to save us and then to use us. He desires to include you and to include me in his redemptive plan. The God of the universe delights to work through small, frail, imperfect people. This is how he delights to accomplish his purpose. Those whom Jesus calls, he also sends. He calls us for this purpose. I think people often when they're thinking about evangelism, they, they think that's just for people with unique giftings. You know, that's just for people who are extroverts, people who are really into apologetics, or people who just have this really big compassion for the lost. But friends, gospel ministry is really just obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what it is at its essence. Because Jesus calls us for this purpose. Evangelism is obedience to the command of Christ. And at an even deeper level, it's really a submission to his purpose. It's what we are saved for, is to serve Christ and to proclaim his gospel. So yes, we need to cultivate a heart for the lost. And yes, there will be some who are uniquely gifted and equipped for this task. But ultimately, if you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian then I can tell you what God's will is for you. It's for you to participate in some way, at some level, in this mission, in advancing the gospel. And that's a matter of obedience for us. You might feel a little overwhelmed by that thought. It might feel overwhelming or scary or discouraging when you think about your failures. But I find it very encouraging to consider this story that these men are really not all that impressive. 
these men, as we've seen in Luke's gospel, they wrestle with faith. These men struggle to understand the whole picture. They don't even get it all yet. They don't have an impressive education. They are nowhere near fully trained. Jesus isn't done with them. This isn't like they've graduated from discipleship school and now it's time to go spread the gospel. No, they're even spiritually immature. But Jesus looks on them and says, I have work for you to do. I have called you for this purpose. And he calls us for this purpose. No matter where you are in your Christian walk, perhaps you just started following Jesus last week. Perhaps it was 65 years ago. No matter where you are in your walk with Christ, there is a part for you to play. It may be as simple as a conversation with your neighbor, just sharing what God's done in your life. It might be something like a mother praying with her four-year-old child at the table. Or it might be moving to a new city to go help plant a church. It can look like a number of different things, but the bottom line is, no matter what part you may play, there is a part for you to play. Because Christ has called us for this purpose. Those whom he calls, he also sends. Not only does Jesus call us for a purpose, but secondly, Jesus equips us for this mission. He equips us for this task. Look at verse one. He called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. These 12 will not be sent empty-handed. Far from it. Jesus gives them two things. He gives them power and he gives them authority. Power is the ability to do great things, the ability to cast out demons, the ability to heal. But he also gives them authority. He gives them the right to exercise that power. I have a son who's 15. He doesn't have a driver's license yet. He has the power, if you will, the know-how to drive a car. He does not have a license to do so without one of his parents in the vehicle. These men are equipped with both the power and the authority. They're licensed to use this divine power and authority on behalf of Christ and his agenda. Now we've seen both power and authority already on display in Jesus's ministry. We see it as he raises the dead, as he calms the storm, as he casts out the demons. And Jesus has explained that this is his calling and mission all the way back in Luke chapter 4. Remember, he read from the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61. And Jesus says this about himself in the synagogue at Capernaum. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus comes with divine power and authority, and he uses that power and authority to set people free and restore them. That's what Jesus has been doing. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, and now he extends that same power and authority so that the disciples might participate in that same mission to deliver, to restore, to proclaim the good news, to advance God's purposes of salvation. They are to extend the ministry of Christ. The disciples are intended to be a force multiplier. Instead of one preaching and healing, there will now be 12 plus one, so 13, right? So the question is, why does Jesus want them to heal? 
Why does he want them to cast out demons? What's the purpose of giving them this power and authority? Well, there's, there's a twofold purpose in this. First of all, their exercise of this power is proof that validates the divine nature of their message. I mean, think about it. Who would listen to 12 guys from Galilee making all these claims about the Messiah, these claims that the kingdom of God is at hand, and telling people they need to repent from their sins? Probably not many would pay attention to them. But if their claim that the kingdom of God was at hand was was backed up by these amazing miracles, people would take them seriously. Because nothing except for divine power could possibly explain these acts of deliverance and these acts of restoration. Not only is it proof of their message, but secondly, Christ's purpose in, in empowering them in this way was also to illustrate their message. It was to illustrate it. These miracles signal the nature of God's kingdom. They provide a foretaste, a preview of what is to come when the kingdom of God is established. The Savior has compassion on those who suffer. And he comes to triumph over the devil. He comes to triumph over sin, to defeat death itself. So to put it simply... As the disciples go out and perform these miracles, they're simply showing the people who are listening that these are the kinds of things that happen when the Messiah shows up. These are the kinds of signs that are inescapable when the kingdom of God is present. Such healings and spiritual victory marked the first coming of Jesus. There's this cluster of these miracles that surround his first coming. And listen, when Jesus returns... These are the same things that will happen on a far greater scale. Victory over spiritual enemies, you better believe it. Massive physical restoration and renewal, that's exactly what Jesus will accomplish. So these men are authorized and commissioned to speak for Jesus, and they're given everything they need. They are equipped spiritually for this task. Jesus always equips us for the mission. She might ask the question, so how are we equipped? What is it that that Christ has given us as we seek to carry out our mission? Should we expect to do the same things that the apostles did? Well, no, I don't believe so. The apostles play a unique role in God's program. To put it simply, not everybody plays quarterback. There's a lot of players that are on the roster for the Kansas City Chiefs. There's only one number 15. He has special gifts, special abilities. But we need other people, right? You need long snappers and kickers and somebody to play special teams. It takes the whole team. The apostles play a unique role in God's redemptive program. And it's different than the role that we play. While we do have things in common with them, yes, they are followers of Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. They are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We too possess the Spirit of God. And we're all working towards the same goal, yes, but they are specially appointed and specially enabled to fulfill a unique task. I mean, think about it. The apostles spent all this time training face-to-face with Jesus. They're on his inner circle. They're at a different level of, of, of closeness and equipping and training than we may be. These apostles would be established as the foundation of the church. The New Testament says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. It is the work of Christ. It is the message of the prophets. It is the teaching and the writings and the labors of these apostles that form the foundation of the church. 
You and I are not the foundation. The foundation's been laid. The foundation's been built. We're working on sheetrock and shingles and wiring up the fixtures. We're doing other work in seeking to build the church. We're not relaying the foundation again. That was their job. These men, under the inspiration of the Spirit, would be used to write Scripture. They have a special role. So they minister in a unique time. And their need for validation is different. Jesus gives them a unique power. And, and I really believe this power he gives them, it's really even temporary. These 12 are uniquely equipped for this journey, this mission, to have this sort of this teaching tour throughout Israel. But when they got back, it seems that things somewhat went back to how they were before. Later on, they would be equipped at Pentecost. They would be filled with the Spirit. Once more, they would do incredible things. But it seems that even for the apostles, these miracles seem to be unique and unusual and for a special purpose. So because we aren't apostles and because we aren't in that phase of history where the foundation of the church is being laid, we're not given the same power to do the same exact works that the apostles did. And that's okay. God has given us our part to play, not as apostles, but as faithful members of the church. But the fact that we're not apostles does not mean that we are not equipped for the mission. Just as Jesus equipped them for their unique task and mission, so also he equips us and provides for us exactly what we need today in our context for our mission. Consider how Jesus equips us. If you're a follower of Jesus today, if you've believed in the gospel, then you have the Holy Spirit. You might say, but, but the Holy Spirit is not working through me to heal and cast out demons. But I would just ask you, do you think that's the only thing the Holy Spirit can do? Do you think that's the only way in which his power is exercised? Do you think that that is the limit to the amazing things that God does through the power of his Spirit? Those are just a few very specific things. But there's many other things that the Spirit does. Consider that the Spirit intercedes for us. He prays for you. Consider that the Holy Spirit empowers you to obey Christ. As you walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5 says, you do not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Victory over sin, holiness, growth, change, that is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And that's been given to us. The Holy Spirit gifts us, each one of us uniquely, to edify and to serve the church. There are many gifts. The Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures to us. He convicts us of sin. He assures us of our salvation in Christ and God's grace. And he changes us day by day into the image of Jesus. As we look upon him, degree by degree, we're conformed into his image. And Paul tells the Corinthians that this comes from the Spirit. Christian, God has equipped you with the Holy Spirit. What an amazing provision that as we are sent to take the gospel to the world, we have God's spirit. Not only do we have God's spirit, but we have the completed text of scripture. We have something more than what these 12 had at that moment. And that's an amazing gift. We have the fullness of God's revelation, the authoritative writings of these apostles. So the authority that he invested in them, we actually do carry with us in written form. We have their writings. We have God's word. Ephesians tells us that this word is like a sword. You've been equipped for the mission. 
Not only do we have the spirit, not only do we have the word, but God has also equipped us and furnished us with what we need in the church. Consider that we have the faithful labors and the testimonies and the writings of believers all throughout history. We can read Augustine. We can read John Calvin, Martin Luther. We can read Martin Lloyd-Jones and these, these faithful believers from every phase of history and faithful believers today. We not only stand on the shoulders of faithful saints in the past, we are part of this great cloud of witnesses today. And we have fellowship today. We have partnership today. We have encouragement and sharpening today in the church. As 2 Peter 1.3 says, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness through the spirit, in the word, and in the church. So Jesus calls us for a purpose, but he also equips us for the mission. Friend, as you go and represent Christ and, and spread the good news, you're going in obedience to Jesus, but you're also going as one that Jesus promises to equip. He has given you what you need. Not only does Jesus call us for a purpose and equip us for this mission, but as we look at this third very important verb, in verse 2, we discover that Jesus sends us with a message. Verse 2 says, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Jesus was somewhat of a rabbi in his time. That's what many people called him. He's a traveling teacher. But he was different than other rabbis. Other rabbis took applications for students. Jesus went out and handpicked his own. And Jesus is unique as a rabbi in sending his students out to speak on his behalf. This is very different than other rabbis. So Jesus sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. This is unheard of. And it won't be the last time that Jesus does this. On this teaching tour, they are sent to go to Israel. But later, they will be sent again. They'll be sent to go to all the nations. So this is sort of like a dress rehearsal for the Great Commission. This is a practice run. Later, they will be charged to take the gospel, not just to Jerusalem, but also to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So Jesus sends them out, but specifically, he sends them with a message. He sends them with a message to proclaim. They are to proclaim the kingdom of God. To proclaim means to announce, to publicize, to, to shout out like a herald would. It even means to preach. Not to preach a sermon necessarily. Not that they write out you know, three points in a poem and, and you know, it takes about 30 to 45 minutes. Rather to preach or to proclaim is to spread this message. A message that has specific content. Jesus doesn't give them free reign. Hey, go talk about whatever you want to talk about. He says, no, go tell them about the kingdom of God. Good news about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a way of summarizing this message. It's an announcement of the reign of Jesus Christ, God's servant, God's Messiah. And it's good news. It's good news that Jesus has come to establish his kingdom because the coming of this kingdom means that all of God's promises are actually converging together. You can read through the Old Testament and see all these different strands, all these different threads of, of promises God has made to his people, and they all start to converge and come together in the concept of the kingdom of God. This concept of the kingdom includes things like crushing the head of the serpent, that ancient promise from Genesis 3, 
the defeat of our ancient enemy. It includes promises like God's people being established in the land that God has promised them, Genesis 12. It includes promises like David's son being seated on the throne forever. In 2 Samuel, we see that in the Davidic covenant. It includes promises like the triumph over the wicked who oppress God's people, Psalm 110. The spiritual and physical renewal and restoration that is coming for Israel in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And and all of these promises, all of these hopes and longings, these deep physical and spiritual needs that God's people have, they all hinge on the Son of Man, on the Son of David, the Messiah, the one spoken of in Psalm 2, in Psalm 16, in Daniel chapter 7. So as they proclaim Jesus, he is the one through whom all these promises are fulfilled. And as these promises are fulfilled, what it means is that God's kingdom is being established. And that is good news. Good news for sinners, good news for sufferers, good news for those who are waiting and longing for God's restoration to come. Later on, this good news, this gospel, as he calls it in verse 6, that they are preaching, as time goes on, later on, this gospel will take shape and will be further developed. This gospel is going to become more specific, and it will focus in and center on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because really it is through the death of Jesus on the cross and it is through the power of his resurrection from the dead that all of these promises will be fulfilled. Defeat of the enemies, salvation for his people, restoration, a glorious king, it all takes us to the cross and the empty tomb. So for us today as we preach and proclaim the gospel, really what that means for us is that we announce that we herald that we publicize the good news that Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, that he was born as a man, he came here, he took on flesh to live a perfect life, to fulfill God's law on our behalf. Jesus came to be good because you and I can't be good. Jesus came to triumph over temptation because our first father, Adam, failed the test. And we have too. To preach the gospel is to announce that this son of God who is perfectly righteous, passing the test, offered himself as a sinless sacrifice, that he took our place on the cross, that he bore the punishment and the wrath of God that we deserve, that he died in our place and satisfied the demands of a holy God's judgment. And then on the third day, this savior, this sinless sacrifice, this son of God, he walked out of the tomb, having not only dealt with our sin, but also defeated death itself, our great enemy. And the resurrected Christ, who is now ascended into heaven, who now intercedes on our behalf as he sits at the right hand of the father, he is coming back to raise us up as well and to establish his kingdom in fullness. And as we tell people this good news, that this is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus done, we announce to them that today, Jesus has not yet come back, which means today is a day of salvation. Today, there is time to repent. We call sinners to turn from their sin and come to Christ and believe in his person, believe in his power, believe in his promise. We invite sinners to come to Christ. We plead with them, come and be saved. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, 
The good news is that there is salvation for you in Jesus. He offers it to you. Come to him. Receive him by faith. There is no better news than to announce to dead and dying sinners that they can be saved and that this is what God offers us in his son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. That's the good news. Good news that we believe in. Good news that we proclaim. And Jesus calls us for a purpose. He equips us for this mission. And then he sends us with this message. This is what we're supposed to tell people. This is what they need to hear. This is the answer. It's imperative that we never lose sight of this message, this gospel. A number of years ago, I did a, just a personal study through the New Testament to study the word gospel. This word is found 97 times in the New Testament. And I, as I did this study, I just studied all the different verbs that are connected to the word gospel. What is it we're supposed to do with it? And I sort of categorized these together. I won't read all 97 instances, but just listen to this summary statement of how the New Testament speaks about the gospel. The gospel is to be preached. It's to be proclaimed. It's to be presented. It's to be declared. The gospel is to be delivered, to be shared, to be believed, and to be obeyed. The gospel must be seen. The gospel is to be confessed. The gospel is to be received. It's to be defended and confirmed and advanced. It's to be sacrificed for. It's to be stewarded. It's to be labored for, hoped in, and preserved. The gospel is not to be turned from. It's not to be distorted. It must never be forgotten. We are not to be ashamed of the gospel. Rather, we are to have confidence in the gospel. We are called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, and if necessary, suffer for the sake of the gospel. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is of first importance. Jesus sends us with a message. That message is not that people need to try harder and do better. The message is not that they need to be like us and that will make the world a better place. The message is the gospel. It's the truth about Jesus Christ, who he is, his death and resurrection to save sinners. So while we may not wield the same power as the apostles, consider that the message we have been given is the same message. It is the good news. It's the gospel. It's what God is doing in fulfilling his promises through his son. And that message is no less authoritative than the message that the apostles preached. And that's why we don't actually need to perform any miracles. We don't have to perform miracles to prove this gospel is true. I mean, think about it. These men claimed that the kingdom of God was at hand, and so then they had to perform these signs to testify to the truthfulness of that claim. We proclaim the death of Jesus, triumph over Satan, and we proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. The sign, the miracle that proves the truth of the gospel, it's already been given. Jesus already did it. When we tell people that Jesus has power over Satan, we just point to the cross. And we tell them what Colossians says, that at the cross, he put all of those spiritual adversaries to open shame, triumphing over them through Christ. When we tell people that Jesus has power over physical uh, uh, sickness and physical illness, we point to the empty tomb. 
our Savior rose from the dead. What greater sign or miracle or power could be displayed? We tell people about the resurrection of Jesus. And if they want to see a a flesh and blood miracle right in front of their face, we simply point them to the church. The church that's been established on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, this church that has survived for 2,000 years despite persecution and despite opposition, this group of people that have been transformed by grace, whose good works testify to the glory of the gospel, how else do you explain a weird group of people like us with our personalities and our past and our failures and our sinful tendencies? How else do you explain what's happening here? the change that's taken place in your life, the hope that you have. We go to funerals differently than they do. We raise our children differently than they do. We mourn over sin differently than they do. Why? It's because the gospel has taken root here and it's changed us. That testifies to the truthfulness of this gospel message. In a sense, friends, we are the miracle. What God has done in us is meant to display his power and glory to the world. So I don't want you to think for a moment that somehow our gospel proclamation will somehow fall flat because we don't perform miracles like the apostles. We may not have their power, but we have their same message. And God is still doing powerful things. We simply point people to that truth. Friends, Jesus calls us for a purpose. He equips us for our mission. He sends us with a message. And then fourth, Jesus instructs us on our mission. He instructs us on our mission. This will take us through the rest of our text. We'll sort of go quickly through this. But Jesus gives them instructions for the trip. And these instructions that Jesus gives that we find in in verses three through five, these instructions are unique for this trip. They're not necessarily binding for all time. In fact, Jesus gives after the Last Supper, later on in his ministry, very different instructions to these same men. So right here in chapter nine, he says, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, do not have two tunics. But then in Luke 22, he says to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack, no sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So the fact that Jesus sends them with nothing this time is unique. Uh, and other, for other, other times, he actually instructs them to take some very necessary equipment. So these instructions are specific, but there's still something that we learn from it. There's still a timeless principle that we can draw. So the specifics change over time, but the truth doesn't change. The principles don't change. They remain the same. So what are those principles? I think there's a couple principles of instruction we draw here. And the first one is this, that gospel ministry requires urgency. Look in verse three. It requires urgency. He says to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics. I think what Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, right now, I want you to be more focused on the task at hand than you are on your own comforts and needs. This matters that we do this and that we do it now, that we do it with a sense of urgency. Sadly, too often today, gospel ministry often takes a backseat to our own concerns and our own interests. But Jesus is teaching the 12 that the ministry of the gospel requires urgency. Secondly, the ministry of the gospel requires dependency. 
He says they're to take nothing for their journey. And then in verse three, he says, or verse four rather, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. They're not taking any supplies, which means they're going to need other people to put them up for the night. They're going to need other people to feed them dinner. They're going to need other people to provide somewhere to sleep and maybe a blanket to cover them with because they won't have a second tunic to warm up with at night. Gospel ministry requires dependency. These men will have to trust God for provision. And and it's really amazing if you think about it that Jesus gives them all this power and authority and then he sends them out to be needy and vulnerable. I mean, see the contrast there? Power and authority over demons and over disease, but you're gonna need somebody else to feed you a meal and put a roof over your head every night. What an amazing contrast we see here. But I think it makes sense because they're calling other people to trust God. They're going to have to show them what it looks like to trust God, to believe in the one that they are proclaiming. Friends, in our own gospel ministry, we need to expect that God is going to sustain the carrying out of his mission. And we need to depend on him. We need to trust him for his provision, rely on him, which means we're willing to step out in faith, trusting he will supply our physical needs. He will supply our emotional needs. He will meet our spiritual needs every step of the way as we go forth to preach the gospel. So the gospel ministry requires urgency and dependency. But I also think that we see here the gospel ministry requires humility. Verse four, he says, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. Think about this. Maybe can speak to some of you students. Maybe you get invited to a party on Friday night and you say yes, that you're gonna go there, but then later somebody else invites you to a better party and it's gonna be more fun at the other party and there's gonna be more people you wanna hang out with at the second party and they have a swimming pool with a big slide. So which party do you wanna go to, right? You wanna upgrade your plans. Hey, sorry, actually I won't be able to make it to your party. Something else came up. I think Jesus is teaching the disciples, look, whoever takes you in first, just stay there. Don't worry about climbing the ladder. Don't worry about, oh, hey, did you know that, you know, the folks across town said we could stay there tomorrow night and they have way better food at that house and they have much deeper pockets. They might be able to to even invest in our ministry. Jesus says, no, be humble, keep it simple. Whoever takes you in, just stay there. That's all I want you to do. It's not about working the system. It's not about, you know, glad handing and working the room and sort of climbing the ladder. He says, I don't want you to have any fear of missing out. This seems very unstrategic. It seems like they might end up maybe in not the best accommodations sometimes. But this humble and straightforward ministry is what Jesus wants. He doesn't want them to worry about all that other stuff. And this also ensures a brief stay in each town, right? This goes back to the point about urgency. If you're only staying in one place, you don't want to wear out your welcome. So stay there for a night or two and then move on to the next town. So this gospel ministry requires urgency and dependency and humility. And then finally, we see here that gospel ministry, we can also expect it's going to result in both reception and rejection. That's what's going to happen. There's going to be some people who open up their homes and receive their message and support their ministry, but there's going to be other people who don't. And he tells them what to do in those situations. Verse 5, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet 
as a testimony against them. There's actually going to be entire towns that don't receive their message, which means they're going to experience the same thing that Jesus did. Remember, he went to Nazareth, his hometown, and nobody would listen. Nobody believed in him, even in his own town. So listen, don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged if you are not more successful than Jesus in your evangelism. We can expect that some people will receive and believe, but Jesus instructs us on what to do when people don't. He says, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This is really an act of judgment. Something that strict Jews in Jesus' day would have done is after passing through Gentile territory, passing through Gentile lands, which they considered to be unclean, you have an unclean people who do unclean things, worshiping these unclean gods. The soil itself is unclean. As soon as you get out of there, wipe the dust off your feet so you don't track any of that mess back into Israel. That's how the strict Jews often thought. So think about, it, what, have, about what it would have meant for Jewish men to wipe the dust off their feet when they're leaving a Jewish town. This is a statement of judgment, saying these people may be descendants of Abraham. They may have the writings of Moses and the prophets, but when they reject Jesus, they are outside the people of God. They don't belong. And because of their hardness of heart, because of their unbelief, they are under God's judgment. And so rather than fight that, he says, simply leave town and wipe the dust off your feet. Leave them in God's hands. God will deal with them in his time and in his way. He says, be prepared for rejection. And when it happens, move on. Go fish somewhere else if the fish aren't biting. We have example, an example of this sort of hearing without believing in Herod. In verses 7 through 9, we're told about Herod's response. Hearing is not enough for him. He heard about all that was happening, verse 7, and he's confused, and he really wants to see Jesus, verse 9. He sought to see him. For some people, they will hear the good news, they will hear about Jesus, but it won't be enough. We know that Herod's interest in Jesus is not sincere or friendly. Herod is suspicious, he's a little bit paranoid. Because some people are saying, verse 7, that John had been raised from the dead because Herod had chopped John's head off. John had been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. John had been calling people to repent. And he faced opposition. Not everybody believed. And it cost him his life. I don't know if Herod is paranoid, if he's guilty, if he's just annoyed that he has to play whack-a-mole with all these people that are preaching the kingdom of God. But he's interested in seeing Jesus. He wants to know more and as we consider this, we're reminded that not all interest in Jesus will be sincere or friendly. And as we go out and proclaim the gospel, you're going to get all kinds of responses. Some people will gladly receive. Some people will reject. Some people may seem interested. It's not always sincere. And we're reminded here that there can be a real cost to gospel ministry. It costs John his life to preach the good news. And there's an ominous foreshadowing here with Herod of a later encounter. Herod sought to see Jesus at this time. He actually never did get to see him until after Jesus was arrested. Later, he would finally get to see Jesus. He would get his way. He was excited to see Jesus, but Jesus didn't perform any party tricks. He wouldn't do any signs and wonders for Herod. And so Herod resorted to mocking Jesus. He dismissed him. He turned him back over to Pilate to be put to death. 
Be prepared for rejection. Be prepared for opposition. Be prepared. But we need not fear that. Because even Herod's rejection of Jesus, even as Herod mockingly dismisses Jesus, sends him back to Pilate, says, yeah, do what you want, put him to death, I don't care. Even that rejection does not thwart the mission of Christ. God's plan was going on exactly as he intended. It actually advanced that mission. In in Jesus being sent to Pilate for execution, Herod was unwittingly helping the mission of redemption go forward because Jesus needed to die. That was God's plan. And while Herod's rejection of Christ resulted in judgment for him, it actually resulted in the provision of salvation for us. So we do not fear rejection. We don't get hung up on it. Wipe the dust off your feet. Let the chips fall where they fall. Trust God to deal with that in his sovereign way and in his sovereign time. And we simply move on and seek to be faithful to keep discharging our duty, to keep proclaiming the message and allow God to work all those things together exactly as he sees fit. Those whom Jesus calls, he also sends. And when he sends us, his gospel mission becomes our gospel message. The question is, will you, as a follower of Jesus, be obedient to the mission that our master has given us? Will you embrace his purpose for you? What he has called you to? Will you proclaim the good news? Will you beat that drum over and over again of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do for sinners? Some people will receive you. God will provide for you. Some may reject you. And if you do this, it will be hard for you to stay under the radar. Some people like Herod might even notice. But listen, God desires to use us to proclaim his good news to the world. Will you join Christ? Will you join the apostles? Will you join the church throughout the centuries? Will you join us today here at Redemption Hill in giving ourselves to this mission? This is what God provides for. It's what he blesses. It's what he uses. And it is our great joy and privilege to serve our master in this way. Will you pray with me?